I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hi there, you are listening to the Third Coast Pocket Conference, where your next great story begins. On this show, we share sessions from past Third Coast conferences featuring the world's top radio makers and podcasters. I'm your host, Dennis Funk. There's an old saying in journalism that goes, if your mother says she loves you, check it out. This American Life's Christopher Switala is the fact checker who calls her to ask and then lets you know if it's true. Or not. In this session from the 2017 Third Coast Conference, Christopher shares tips and lessons for triple-checking your own reporting and writing and avoiding mistakes that could send your reputation into a tailspin. Here is the fact-checker. Thank you. Um, I'm just curious, how many of you have worked with a fact-checker? Oh, that's a fair amount. Um, Interesting, I didn't expect that. Um... If any of you are curious and want to fact-check my blurb about the class, you can talk to my colleague here, Neil Drumming. He will attest that I am not above calling somebody's parents and asking personal questions. I first started fact-checking for This American Life in the fall of 2015. I was a freelancer, and about a year later, I joined the staff as the head of fact-checking. And these days, I pretty much fact-check most of the scripts myself. Um, And if I can't do it, I assign them to uh, Michelle Harris or Ben Phelan, um, whose names you might recognize from Shit Town and Serial. They fact-checked those shows. Um, And I mention that because we all got our start in magazines. Uh, I started at The Nation in 2003. Ben started at Harper's in 2003. And Michelle started at National Geographic sometime in the mid-'90s. And in the magazine world, fact-checkers are widespread. Um, Just about all the major publications have them. All the reporters work with fact-checkers pretty closely. Um, That's not necessarily the case I'm finding in radio. Um, But there does seem to be a curiosity about fact-checking, and there does seem to be some interest. And I'm really happy to be here to talk to you about what it is I do. I'm going to talk to you about my process. I'm going to walk through some scripts. But before I talk, before I do that, I want to talk about why I think fact-checking is important. I imagine a lot of you in this room think of yourself as documentarians. I know Ira does. Um, It's one of the things that he asks in pitch meetings quite often. He asks, what is being documented with this story? What is it that we hope to capture on tape about what it means to be alive uh, today? And so Ira is a documentarian. But he's a lot of other things. He's obviously the host of the show. 
Um, he's our boss. He's uh, an audio mixer. He's a storyteller. He's a writer. He's an editor. And he's also a reporter. I don't know if people think about that so much, but he does a lot of his own reporting himself. He does. He digs up a lot of numbers. He talks to people. He goes out into the field. And reporters deal with facts. So all the stories that Ira are, is telling, they start with facts. So he is a storyteller, but he's also a reporter. And the facts matter because they build a trust with our audience. You'd be surprised. Um, like one of the worst days for me is Tuesday because that's when our web person gathers all the emails that we get and she forwards it to the staff. And in those emails, there's always people. We get, our shows get a lot, a lot of scrutiny. And in those emails, there's always somebody being like, that's not right, that's not right, that's not right. And I look and I go through each one of those things looking for the ones that like, need to be addressed or need to be thought about. Um, anyway, it's just stressful for me. <laughs> um, but our audience does expect the stories to be correct. They expect them to be factual. And it establishes a trust with them. And that's why I think fact-checking matters. It lends credibility, credibility to the stories. It, lends, uh, it makes your audience trust us. Um, and I also think fact-checking matters for fairness. And I think of fairness in two different ways. I think of fairness to the sources. I think of fairness into the people that you interviewed. These are people, especially on our show, people who are often telling you personal stories. The stories can be really intimate. And you owe it to them, I think, to give them a call and to run through what you're going to say to them about them. It's, you're, you're the one telling the story, but it's their life. And you should give them a chance to fix any inaccuracies. I also think of fairness in terms of balance. You don't take one side of an issue before you tell a story. You talk to all sides of a party. And sometimes, as a fact checker, it's my job, like, the reporter may not necessarily do that extra step, may not speak to everybody. And I have to push to say, like, we need to speak to all sides of the story, all sides of this issue before we broadcast this story. So I think fairness is important. And also, I imagine, like, a, a big thing in the room is that people are kind of curious about is Mike Daisy um, and stories like that. They're incredibly rare, uh, these stories of fabrication. Uh, they do happen um, as people like Stephen Glass and Jason Blair can attest. I mean, the, that show. Um, I don't know a whole lot. Like, I don't think I can shed a whole lot on Mike Daisy because it was before my time. What I can say is that This American Life started fact-checking because of the Mike Daisy incident. Like, I don't think I would be at This American Life if there, that story hadn't been broadcast. I think my position grew out of a desire for Ira, from Ira and the other producers to have someone go through the scripts independently. Um, I contact whoever I want. Uh, I follow my own leads. I don't just talk to people they speak to. I contact my own sources. I figure things out for myself. Um, and I'm going to share a story with you that is, I think speaks to the importance of fact-checking in that it speaks to the importance of process. And that's what fact-checking is. It's really a process. 
And that process starts with speaking to people. And I speak to a lot of people when we do a story, particularly big stories. I speak to everybody that's in the story, and I often speak to a lot of people who aren't in the story, meaning they're not necessarily a voice you hear on tape. They might be an outside expert. They might be somebody who just gets passingly mentioned. I, might, I speak to a lot of different people. And the reason why this matters is because you learn a lot. You just The stories, as you speak to more people, you learn more information, you see things in a richer and more complex way. And <clears throat> several years ago, I was working on a magazine story, and it was about a serial killer in Macedonia. And the serial killer was killing older women and uh, you know, dumping their bodies around this small rural town. And there was a journalist in this small town who was reporting on the crimes in the local newspaper. And he was getting pretty amazing scoops. Like, he was learning lots of really intimate and uh, disturbing details about how these people died. And the police were dumbfounded. They didn't understand how he was getting this information. They assumed there was some sort of leak. But in this story that this reporter told, had written up, there was this hero sheriff. And the hero sheriff was hot on the case of the serial killer. And he figured out that the serial killer was actually the journalist. And the journalist was reporting on the crimes because, I mean, he was reporting on the crimes and he knew all these details because he had committed the crimes. So I contacted the reporter and I said, hey man, can I get your source material? Can you send me your uh, transcripts? Can you send me some contact information? Uh, I need, definitely need to speak to the sheriff who was your translator. And he got back to me, he's like, the translator is a really weird guy. You're not gonna have much luck with him. And I was like, okay, that's not good. I called the guy, and he was, in fact, weird, so I hired my own translator. <laughs> um, I hired my own translator. She was a young woman at Columbia. She spoke Macedonian. She was from the country. And we met at my office early in the morning every day, and we called all these people in Macedonia. Not one person got back to me. I was, I was, like, I was, I was, I was scared. I was confused. I was like, why aren't people getting back to me? And... I, you know, I had her reading through all sorts of newspaper stories from Macedonia, and it was in LexisNexis, and I found this, like, really brief blurb of an AP story that was probably no more than a couple sentences about the serial killer and what he had done and how he got caught. And it had a police spokesman, and it gave a name for the police spokesman, and I was like, oh, that's good. And so I had her find his number, and she did. She found his cell phone number, and she called him up. Turns out he spoke English. Good luck for good news for me. And I was like, give me the phone, give me the phone. And I told him, and I was like, hey, I'm a fact checker and I'm working on this magazine story. And the reporter, you know, he spent some time with the sheriff who solved the crime and he told us all these details about the psychological profile of the killer and how he solved the crime and all this. And the police spokesman stopped me right there and he said, I'm with the national police. That's like your FBI. The guy you're talking about, he's a small town sheriff. He didn't solve that crime. Um, he didn't solve the crime. We did. We have people who are forensic experts. We have people who have been doing this for years and years and years. They solved the crime. I'm not answering any of your questions. And being the pushy fact checker that I was, I still sent him like 100 questions. <laughs> and every response was like, that's not accurate. That, no, that didn't happen. And so I confronted the reporter with all this, and he said that he felt pressure from the editors to make the story more sexy. That was like the word that he used. And he kind of, he fabricated it. Um, 
And the reason why I like this story, because it does speak to the process. Like, he gave me transcripts. He gave me information. He gave me stuff. I had, a, I had a transcript of a conversation between him and a sheriff where all the stuff was said that he reported on. But then I took it a step further. I found my own sourcing, and I contacted this other guy, and he was like, that's not accurate. It's important to speak to people when you fact-checked. It's important to give people a call. It's important to run information by them. Um, you'll learn a lot, and that's a lot of what I, that's a lot of what I do. Um, now, I imagine some of you are kind of curious about how you learn to be a fact-checker. Um, and it's actually not something you're taught in journalism school. There's no like fact-check intensive you can go to to learn how to do it. It's a job you learn largely by doing it. And um, I started doing it, like uh, my, my introducer said, at The Nation in 2003 as an intern. And the internship was essentially a job in fact-checking. But they didn't give you a whole lot of guidance. There was an intern director, his name was Richard, and basically what he did was he underlined all the facts and he gave you the manuscript. And he said, go confirm the facts. And when the facts are confirmed, take a blue color pencil and, slice, and slash through the facts. And he said that blue color, like, to slash through each, every word of every sentence. And that was just to ensure attention to detail, to make sure each word was considered of whether or not that word was in fact true. Um, he gave us a little talk about uh, primary sources versus secondary sources. And, you know, a primary source would be a, a historical document, a first-hand account, a legal document. A secondary source might be a newspaper story or whatever. And that was pretty much it. Um, and we started, and I just had to go out and kind of figure out how to do it. But it's actually pretty much the system I use to this day. I don't underline my facts. I highlight them. So what I do... <laughs> Um, what I do is we actually work in Google Documents. Um, there's a, we have a, like a Google Doc, and so all the editor, all the producers rather, um, and me are shared on a Google Doc of a script. And the producers go through and they make edits and they ask questions. And I do the same thing. I go through and I make questions and I make comments. Um, but what I do, I don't work just in the Google document. What I do is I print out the Google document into a hard copy. And I take that hard, I go through the hard copy and I highlight all the facts. And I have like, I use different colors and um, then I start calling people. And I'm going to show you a highlighted printed out page of a Google Doc. And this is from a story by Zoe Chase. It was about, um, the story was, <laughs> you're laughing, this is my process. <laughs> <laughs> this story was about uh, a congressman named Dave Bratt. He's, I think he's from Richmond, but he's definitely from Virginia. And he was the one who unseated Eric Cantor a few years ago. And this, and this Zoe's story is, you know, largely about that, about that race and how it happened. Um, and here you'll see I highlighted this guy, Ron Maxwell. All the blue stuff is the stuff that Zoe talked, got information from, got, got, it's all information that Zoe got from Ron. So I was gonna run stuff that, run that stuff by him. Um, the purple stuff is just stuff that I wanna check in various documents. It might be a newspaper stories, it might be a GAO report, which is the Government Accountability Office report. It might be a, um, I don't know, 
some sort of policy paper or something. And the yellow stuff is from a speech that the congressman Dave Bratt gave. And it's something that he gave during the campaign trail. And you'll notice that I also, that's yellow. But then also that first line, it says 60,000 kids are expected to cross the border, $225 a day per child. He's talking about 2014 when there was an influx of children from Central America fleeing the violence in El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala. Um, and he's talking about the costs of that and how high the numbers are. Um, I fact-checked those numbers. I don't just, just because he says it in his speech, we don't just simply broadcast it. I look, I look into those numbers. And if those numbers were wrong, I would correct them. Where we would, so we would come in afterwards and say, oh, no, the numbers are actually whatever. Um, okay. So that's that. This is a page after I've kind of looked at it. You'll see my blue, my blue slashes. Um, that means pretty much that everything Ron told me checked out. I was pretty happy with it. I didn't have anything to say. I do want to mention just uh, when I do talk to someone like Ron, like he, here he's talking about when the Dave Brack campaign, the, the congressman's campaign, really took off. Um, I wouldn't say to him, for instance, I wouldn't say, oh, so you told Zoe Chase that the campaign took off in May of 2013. Is that right? I don't give people yes or no questions. I would ask him a more open-ended question. I would say, hey, when, when, did you, when do you think the campaign took off, in your opinion? I would do my best to get him to recreate the conversation with me. Um, I, I ask open-ended questions and not yes or no questions because yes and no questions make people, it makes people kind of blasé. You get a lot of responses like, yeah, 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 uh, next question, yeah, that's right. But they don't really think about what they're saying. But if you ask open-ended questions sort of based off the script, people do think about what they're saying. And you learn more details. You get richer, deeper responses. Um, so that's a little bit how I, I talk to people. Um, and here I just like, I, wanna, I have some stuff in red. And that means that's just stuff that I noticed that was different and or maybe warrants a correction, maybe doesn't. Um, in this instance, talking about the 60,000 kids at the, expecting to cross the border, he was talking about 2014. I found, I found, I make a little note there. It says 69,000 for the fiscal year of 2014. And then the source underneath is the Migration Policy Institute. Now, the Migration Policy Institute is a nonpartisan uh, think tank that focuses on uh, immigration issues, and they put out a lot, a lot of reports. They're well-regarded. They're well-respected. He's not far off. I don't think he, we would need to correct that. Um, and the same for the $225 a day per child. Um, I found it in a GAO report. Um, it's, uh, it was $2,013 a day per child in 2013, $248 a day for the fiscal year of 2014. So again, he's not too far off. No need to, to issue, like, come in with a correction behind this bit of tape. But I do, but I did check it. And so we would footnote that. Like, I would just make a notation of it, and we'd footnote it in our script, and we would know that this, this is pretty solid information. But like I said, if it wasn't, we would correct it. Now, um, beneath this is a little line. The story is, like I said, is about the race between Eric Cantor and um, Dave Bratt. And it was kind of, you know, it, Dave Bratt gained some momentum, he caught up speed, and immigration was a central uh, campaign issue in, in, that, in that race. 
And Zoe writes in this script, uh, at this point, things were heating up in Congress around an immigration reform bill, which included a path to legal status. Democratic Representative Louis Gutierrez was doing this countdown until July 4th, the July 4th recess on the floor of the House every day. You've got 20 days to pass the immigration reform deal, et cetera, et cetera. She did, this th- she did this throughout her story. She referenced this immigration bill that Louis Gutierrez was trying to pass in the House. I marked it with red here because there was, he wasn't actually trying to pass an immigration bill in the House. It was a mistake. Um, she just missed, she got, I'm going to talk to you, look, now I'm going to show you, I'm going to talk a little bit more about this, but now I'm going to go into the, to the Google Doc. So this is the Google Doc. And like I, the, the, that, since I work in paper, I will, once I have all my notes together, I'll go into the Google Doc and I'll start making comments in the margin. And the producers and I will have a conversation about, about like in the Google Doc, we'll have a conversation. Like I found this and they'll respond and we go back and forth and we close things out. Um, most of, this is an old script, so most, of the, so most of our conversation is kind of been closed out. But I do want to, this is just an example of what I would say about the Louis Gutierrez, Louis Gutierrez trying to pass the immigration reform bill. I, I wrote a note, flagging, there was no bill working its way through the House. The Senate had passed a bill in 2000 for, 2014, but it was actually languishing in the House because leadership, Cantor and Boehner, refused to act upon it. Gutierrez was trying to secure enough votes should he introduce a bill in the House that his bill might actually have... Uh, support to move forward instead of sitting idly without any support. Now, I don't want to get too, too in the weeds to, of this, but I do want to say, kind of like explain what happened, because it's something that you want to be careful of, I think, when you're writing your scripts. Zoe was reading the newspapers at the time. That's where this information about like the 2014 Senate bill passed. It passed in 2014, and because you know the Senate approves a bill, then it moves to the House. It sat idle in the House. That frustrated Louis Gutierrez. So he was trying to work on his own bill, separate of that Senate bill, and he was trying to get support. Zoe watched a documentary about that, and she was reading about the Senate bill in the paper, and she conflated the two in her head as she was writing a script and trying to tell a story. It's easy to do. It happens. And I remember one thing that Zoe said to me when we started talking about it. We sat down, because this was a moment that appeared... This, this bill popped up in the script in numerous different times. So Zoe and I basically just sat next to each other and we went through the script and we made the language work so it wouldn't be like there was some big dramatic bill that Louis Gutierrez was trying to pass. But I do remember like one thing that Zoe said to me when um, we, we talked about it. She was like, oh my God, she, she said exactly that. I thought the Senate bill that I was reading about in the paper was the same thing that Gutierrez was working on in the document, or that was, he was discussing in the documentary. I conflated the two in my head. You think, how, you think you know how Congress works until you take a really close look. <laughs> and then you realize you have no idea. Um, and I put, the, and I sort of just, I pieced this narrative together from press reports. I looked, a lot, I looked at the legislation, like the congressional legislation. I call it Thomas. I don't know if they, they still call it that, but um, you can go into this database and you can see where legislation is through Congress. Um, so I did, all the, I did all that sort of stuff, and then Zoe and I were able to make some corrections. Um, and I do want to say, like, this story came together pretty quickly. It was, like, it was a pretty intense week for a lot of people. I was up late at night 
Um, so was Zoe. She was working hard. And I wasn't necessarily following my best advice. I wasn't always, um, I didn't always print out my scripts and go through line by line. I was flying really, really fast. And there was, and I just want to point out how, like, just how careful you need to be with just some of the, sometimes the simplest facts. Um, and I think I would have probably have caught this if I, I was, I was really busy and, you know, it was tiring or whatever. But right here, she, just, she talks about, she says, she writes a paragraph and she mentions uh, Eric Cantor as the speaker of the house. Um, he was not the speaker of the house. Um, John Boehner was. Eric, Eric Cantor was the uh, house majority leader. I read that line, I swear, for every day for three or four days. I did not catch it. It was like, it was like 6.30 on a Friday night. We broadcast at 8 o'clock on a Friday night, and Zoe was sitting next to me, just sort of like, Christopher, like, is my script? Like, she's just like, she just wanted my final, like, I like your script. And I, <laughs> and I was just like, she was sitting next to me, and I was like, Zoe, wait, why, why, why are we calling him speaker? And she's like, why, why is Boehner in here? And she's like, oh, my God, no, House Majority. And so she jumped up, went and corrected it, and we fixed it. I, I mention this because this process does work. Printing it out, highlighting your facts, going through the script and ticking through things makes you pay attention. It makes you be careful. Um, and that's just an instance where I, I was being human and being a little fast and I messed up, or I could almost messed up. I caught it at the end. <laughs> um, okay. I guess that's a little glimpse into the, the, the technical side of things. I guess a little bit of the, the how I do it, the how, I, the how to um, now I want to speak a little bit to my, um, my mindset. Um, I like to think that I come across as a normal guy. I am, when I'm fact-checking, I can be incredibly paranoid. I, not, I'm not lying. I, 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 can, I can obsess about things. I, I have woken up in the middle of the night sort of like worried like, oh no, is that, is that not right? I get like checking things. I get really nervous when people don't call me back. It makes me, it makes me, I go to this place where like, oh, this is just like that, that sheriff that didn't actually solve the crime. They're trying to pull a fast one over on me. <laughs> so I'm incredibly paranoid. I'm also really, um, I'm not like this way in life, but I'm an aggressive reader. Um, I read with a lot of intensity. Um, I don't go through scripts. I don't read scripts where I go through like, yes, I know that's right. Yes, I know that's right. Yes, I know that's right. I don't think in those terms. I read the scripts like, what is wrong? I'm actively searching for what is wrong. I don't say to myself like, oh, I know that because it's from a GAO report. I just, I just, I'm like, oh, what's wrong about that number? Um, In fact, pretty much every script I get when I read them I, I assume that there's probably every fact is wrong, every fact is a mistake, and it's my job to fix it. It's just, it's just a, it's a mindset. Um, but it helps. It keeps me um, dogged, and I ask a lot of questions, and um, I see it as a, I see it as a puzzle in a way. So, because like the producer and the reporters have obviously written a story, and they see things one way. And I see it as my job to take that puzzle apart, examine all the components, and put the puzzle back together again. And if I don't see something in the same way, try to come to some sort of 
understanding about why it is I don't see things, see things the same way that they do. And, like, that's where the comments come in. Like, we start to have a conversation. Um, so that's a little bit about, and, they, and it's, so that makes me, so I talk to a lot of people and I ask a lot of questions. Now I want to say a little bit about um, what I ask for from producers. Um, I ask, I don't ask the producers for as much as you might think. Um, I, I actually, what I ask for first, I always ask for the contact information. Um, because I get in touch with just about everybody who's on the show. And if a producer didn't get in touch with somebody, I also, I, a lot of times, if I think it's necessary, I'll track them down myself and I'll give them a call or I'll shoot them an email just to see what they have to, to say. And I do, like I was talking about earlier, I have pretty lengthy conversations with people about what it is they had told somebody. And what I'm looking for is discrepancies in what they're telling me and discrepancies in what they're telling the writer or the producer. And if those discrepancies occur, I try to come to some sort of understanding about why it is. Now, I don't see this as an opportunity for sources to edit a producer's story. That's not what happens. You have, you do have the log. You do know what they said. So if they said something that's like contentious or embarrassing, you don't let them just edit it out because they don't like it. That might happen a lot, especially in like political stories because people are so mindful of like their image or something. Um, you don't let people edit their stories, but you do want to give people to a chance to correct inaccuracies. Um, and I also ask for contact information for experts. Um, a lot of the times if a producer is doing a story, let's say, on economics or on immigration policy. My hope is that they had spoken to somebody besides the people, the Border Patrol people that they hung out with. Um, and a lot of times they have, but if they haven't, I find, a, you know, I find somebody at the Migration Policy Institute that I want to talk to. I find somebody at Canto that I want to talk to. I find somebody, there's a place in Syracuse called uh, Trace that deals a lot with immigration issues. I talk to them. I run the stuff that they learn out in the field past experts. Um, I also uh, ask the producers for any legal documentation that they might have gathered along the way. Um, I do want to say a word or two about this just because it can be quite time consuming to get legal documents. Um, it's actually pretty easy if you're dealing with a federal case because there's a big database called PACER and the PACER database is great if, it's, if you're dealing with federal courts, you can go in there. If you learn how to use it, you can enter people's names, you can enter case numbers, and you can get uh, criminal complaints, you can get judgments, you can get a lot of information that'll sort of buttress your reporting. Um, uh, states can be a little more difficult because every state has different laws. Some states will give you information online, other states, you have to uh, you know, call a clerk, tell them what you're looking for and they'll print it out for you. In other states, you actually have to go into a courthouse to find the information that you're looking for. So that can be, um, you know, that can be quite time-consuming. But I also think it's important, um, just, to, just to give you an example, like a, 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 a real-world example. Like, let's say you're working on a, somebody gets charged with murder, and that story gets a lot of attention in the press. Um, 
And everybody's saying there's, oh, this guy has been charged with murder. There's all these allegations of murder. And then let's say, and the press covers it a lot. But then let's say the case drags on and on and on. And then, find, and then ultimately he, he's found, like, not guilty or maybe he pleads to manslaughter. That doesn't get covered as much. And, you, and if you're just basing your information off some press account, you don't want to be calling somebody a murder, murderer if later down the line they were found to be charged with only manslaughter. Um, getting the court documentation, getting the charges, getting the judgments can help you ascertain how you, it is you can describe somebody in such a situation. Um, another thing I want to say, um, this isn't strictly speaking, this isn't strictly a legal thing, but um, the example I'm going to give involves dealing with a lawyer. But um, one of the, I guess it's kind of house policy in a way at This American Life. If you're going to level an accusation against somebody, if you're going to allege something that somebody did something, you need to run it by that person. Like you need to get that person's reaction. Um, Ira and I were actually talking about this and I had mentioned that to him and he put it a little differently. He he put it as, if you're going to say something shitty about someone, say it to their face. (laughs) Um, and get their reaction. And a good example of this, I think, in a fact-checking way, was uh, Nancy Updike did a story about O.J. Simpson. And in this story, O.J. Simpson, he did a... He made a prank show, and the prank show is all about... um, He's, I don't know, it's kind of trashy. Like, there's naked ladies dancing around on trampolines for no reason. It's totally bizarre. Um, But in the course of the reporting, people had told Nancy about... O.J. Simpson's drinking and on set and had told her about all these crude jokes he had made on set. She didn't just, like, report that. Like, she tried to interview O.J. Simpson. He didn't want to talk to her. Um, ultimately, we ended up putting it into an email, sending it to his lawyer, and be like, we are reporting this. Unless we get a response from you by X date, this is what we're saying. And it's important to run the things you're going to say about people by them. Um, and I think... I also want to say a word about logs. Um, this will happen sometimes. It just it, somebody will you, somebody will interview somebody and they'll be like, "Oh, it's in the log," and like they'll make some sort of they'll make some sort of they'll say something in the log, and what they say in the log might not actually be right. Like the log is not the law. The log is just it's one more tool for me to assess what it is a reporter is reporting. Generally speaking with logs, how I treat them, because I do talk to everybody, I get the log, I skim through the log, I get a feel for somebody, get a sense for like who they are, what they talked about, and then I go into the conversation and I have a conversation with them. I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical of, of the log. And an example of this one would be um, Nancy Updike also did a story. She did a story about uh, Evan Osnos. And Evan Osnos is a reporter for The New Yorker. And he uh, wrote a book about Chinese propaganda, and this book gets into quite a bit of Chinese history. And in the log, he talks about shame towels, like Chinese newspapers in the 1920s, uh, Chinese newspapers in the 1920s selling selling shame towels, something called shame towels. He talks about the Japanese occupation in Manchuria. He talks about what happened in Tiananmen Square. I didn't simply just take Evan's word for this stuff. Like, he's written a book about it, and he's quite knowledgeable. But I didn't take, just take his word for this stuff. I consulted history books. I consulted policy papers. I called Evan up. I went over every beat of the story with him. 
In fact, there were a couple of things that I couldn't find on my own. I asked Evan. I was like, hey, can you point me in the right direction? He photocopied some material for me, emailed it to me, so I could read a little more in depth about it. Um, So I guess it speaks to that adage um, that I kind of mentioned at the beginning of my talk. If somebody says their mother loves you, check it out. You want to go a step further than the log. It's not... It's not the end. Like, you, you build your story out of the log. You create your story, but then you check it all. Um, and now I thought I would uh, kind of run through a script by Ira. Uh, I don't know if you, if you guys, there was this really, it's, it's a fun story um, and, and kind of uh, disturbing story, too. But the guy was such a great talker. He, made it fun but his it was about this guy named Alan um, and he was a college student and he had a psychotic breakdown and in the midst of his psychotic breakdown he was in his apartment building and in the in that in the and when he told us is that he jumped off his three-story balcony stole a car drove it to a hospital crashed the car wound up in the emergency room and in the emergency room um he assaulted two police, police officers and ended up being shot. This was all while he was having a psychotic breakdown. So Ira did a big story about like, this guy's psychotic breakdown and a story about why are police officers in do, uh, working as security guards in a hospital. Um, and I just wanted to show like, a little bit about like, some of the documentation and talk to you about a couple of moments in, in this story. Uh, this is just kind of a this is just kind of a fun one. This is Ira. This is like Ira. This is like reporter Ira in tension with like editor Ira. He was going to call his act um, first do no harm. I imagine that rings a bell with a lot of you. Um, but he when he when he did that he wrote a footnote and he wrote a footnote to me, and it says yes we know first. Do no harm is not part of the Hippocratic Oath, but if everyone believes a lie, does it become the truth or at least a headline-worthy material? <laughs> it's just like he's sort of anticipating me being on like, well, actually. <laughs> um, Ira did not use the first do no harm uh, act name. But um, here, like, and then here, like, so the, in this story, the government did a, a big report about this incident, um, and they issued this report, and I read it like a bazillion times, and so did Ira. And um, I like so in the course of this story, anything that came from the report, like I footnoted it. Like that's what this means: CMS report, page thirty-seven. So it was just like he, this guy Alan, he told us his narrative. He told us what happened, but then we also looked at the the official report, and we made sure there was nothing like out of whack. We made sure everything kind of add up, added up, and um, made sense. Um, and this one is also just kind of also just a fun little fact check. But it's also, it does, I think, just speak to, like, you know, we, we, we check things out. So, like I said, this guy, he told us that he jumped out of a three-story, off a three-story balcony, and he survived. That's pretty incredible. Um, and so we were like, wow, how, how can we believe him? And so Ira worked one of the, like one of the things into the script. And he, he writes, by the way, this story about jumping down the balcony seems to be completely true. We checked with the pro- property manager, the building, and for a bunch of reasons I won't bore you with here, the way Alan's apartment was locked, the only way he could have gotten out is off the balcony. So there's a way about, there's a way about the guy's apartment 
the way it's set up is if it's locked from the inside, there's no other way like you're going to be able to, to get out. So it just, it just led, you know, believability to the fact that, the guy, that's not, that what he told us was in fact true. And the other thing is I talked to the, guy, the guy's father about it, and the guy's father, he told, me, he told me the story, and he says that he heard the story while the kid was still in the hospital. So it's not like he's telling, it just lends credence to the fact that like he's not thinking of some sort of like fantastic story, you know, down the line. Um, and then take a look at one other little note in this script. So normally, like, you'll see this note here. Like, normally a script will just be, like, pages and pages and pages of, like, comments. And then we close them out. Um, but the, this story's done, so they're kind of all been closed out. Um, so, again, this is just uh, us looking at documentation. It says here, police charged Allen with two counts of aggravated assault, one for each officer. Uh, we got the complaint from the court, or I think we got the complaint from the court, or maybe from Alan's lawyer, um, I can't remember, but we had a copy of the complaint. I read it, I pointed it out. I originally actually wrote that there were four counts of aggravated assault. I read the complaint and I was like, Ira, I'm confused. There's, like, the, the um, complaint says there are two. And then I, I mentioned that I showed it to uh, a lawyer and they, like, agreed there's two. And he wrote back, like, Christopher, did you read the complaint? And I was like, yes, I read the complaint. That's what my note said. <laughs> and I was like, and then, he, and then he, he eventually ended up, you know, making the change. But it just, you just want to have somebody kind of go through and, and double check everything and be kind of scrupulous about every little uh, detail. And I thought um, one last thing, and this isn't in the script because it got edited out. But like I said, there was this government report, the CVS report. Um, and, and in that report, it said the security officers by the hospital were provided by a certain company. And the company's name was Criterion. And I had read this report a bunch of times. And there were still a few questions I had about the report. In the hospital, they had hired a PR person to answer all our questions about the, our story. Like, they were going to answer any questions about this incident that happened. They answered a bunch of questions from Ira. I think I ended up sending them 12, 15 questions. They wanted them all in email. The woman called me back and, you know, gave me her responses. And one of the things in the report was that the company criterion had provided them, had provided these officers to them. And I was a little, I was just, for whatever reason, I was a little confused about it just from reading the report and I asked the PR person about this and she got back to me and she was like oh actually I'm glad you asked about that because the company the, the report is wrong like the company criterion they didn't actually provide the officers um, the report got that wrong now she and she, I don't know why she said this to me it's a very strange thing to say but she said to me she said if you say if you say in your story according to the report criterion provided like that would be right. And I was just like, yeah, okay. And then I was, <laughs> and I, you know, and I was kind of like, Ira, were talking about, Ira and I were talking about the story, just kind of walking through some facty things. And I told him this story, and I was like, hey, yeah. And she was like, you can just use it, and he, like, you could use it if you say according to the report, then you can mention the criterion, because that would be true. And Ira kind of just shook his head, and he was like, why would I want to report something that's wrong? <laughs> um, and I think that's, like, a good question to end on. Um, I don't know, but we could start with some questions. Hello, hello. 
we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with the Q&A from this session in just a minute. Are you tired of endlessly searching for good radio stories? Or maybe feeling overwhelmed by the amount of podcasts filling up your feed? This is Radio Lab. I'm Jad Abumran. Well, worry no more, because Third Coast has you covered. I'm Gwen Maxi, host of Third Coast's podcast, ReSound. ReSound is a themed, hour-long mix of the best in radio and podcasting from the past and present. We've been carefully curating nothing but the best stories from around the world since 2004, and we have a treasure trove of amazing audio. Each episode is bound to have something to fit every listener's individual taste. Personal stories, essays, sound art, mystery stories that twist and turn, and other audio experiments. So stop searching. Subscribe to ReSound today and treat yourself to the finest stories ever told in sound. Your ears will thank us. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome back. Here's the Q&A from this presentation of The Fact Checker. I believe you're on staff at this time, but I'm wondering how you went about um, fact-checking the story on the Greece uh, refugee camps where maybe you... I don't know if you were able to get in touch with the sources. We got sources. in touch with a lot of them. Um, there were some people we didn't get in touch with, um, and I don't remember why we didn't get in touch with them, but uh, actually uh, that story... It was a two-episode story. It was set in Greece, and it was about people from basically all over the world, trying to get to Greece. And one of the things that I had asked the producers to do when they, before they went off to go reporting was because, like, these people are from all around the world. Like, I was just sort of like, how are we going to know who they are? Like, we, they had WhatsApp, and so we were trying to text with them, but, you know, their cell phones die out and move on, whatever. But, um, like, Miki Meek in particular, she, did her, she was the one that spearheaded the, 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 that story. Um, she did a really great job of getting, like, documentation of them. Like, when they went, entered the EU, um, these people got documentation from the EU. And it said, like, where they were from, um, and you, you could gleam a little bit. So, like, if somebody's telling a story about the fact that they're, they were fleeing um, Afghanistan for some reason, like, you could see, like, oh, they're, yeah, it says right here that their origins were from Afghanistan. But we did talk to... Uh, like a number, a number of people in, in, in those stories, though there were some that we didn't 
weren't able to track down. And in those cases, we relied on the logs. Hi. Um, your footnotes seem really extensive and potentially maybe not use interesting to everyone, but potentially useful to people. And I wonder if you've ever thought about like sharing those publicly on the website transcripts or if you know of any other organizations who do something like that to kind of preempt I, yeah, I, do, I don't think we would do it because um, it's not like it's not it's like a, I, I mean, I just don't think we would do that. Um, but we it's like a, it's kind of an internal sort of uh, note taking thing that, you know, we occasionally will consult like post broadcast if we get a question about something. Um, and it's also just a record of us, like, knowing what was examined. And there are definitely reporters out there who will, I can't, I wish, I mean, I, I have one in my email somewhere. We just recently did a story on something in Texas, and it was about a girl in high school, and I don't remember. I work on a lot of stories, but one of the things I got was a, uh, a reporter had sent me an annotated version of a story that she had published online. So, like, reporters do do that, and it's definitely interesting to see where people, you know, get their information from. Um, after the whole blowback from the Mike Daisy thing, there were some articles I read. Some people were asking, well, what about someone like a David Sedaris who writes these stories and maybe everything's not precisely correct? I, I saw David once, and I asked him about this, and he said what he would do, for example, he'd write some description of a taxi driver, but he didn't, you know, the description in his story isn't maybe exactly the way it is, but he would then go out and stand on a corner and watch taxi drivers for like half an hour and write kind of an amalgamation and description of that. Um, I'm wondering how you feel about that, how much the actual facts matter in a situation like that versus yeah, kind I th of... I think like yeah. in a situation like that, like, um, like we wouldn't necessarily be like, where's the taxi driver? We need to talk to that specific taxi driver to make sure, like, whatever. But I do think, like, we do seek confirmation about the broad strokes of, like, a story like that. Like, if, um, I, I, like I was recent, oh, I'm just trying to think of a good example. Um, like, if somebody tells us, a, like, there, there was a story recently where, that we got, and it was about a guy, and he tells a story about something that happened to him when he was a child, and they had a, they had a, um, they had a pool in their backyard and the pool got destroyed and for a summer the 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 pool was destroyed in the backyard and then some miraculously some sort of like white pumpkin like grew underneath this pool and like I can like I was I talked to the guy's sister and like she was like yeah like that all that stuff happened I don't know so much about the pumpkin and so like what I did was like I consulted like a um a uh I don't know what you call them. They grow pumpkins, and they teach at Clemson. <laughs> and, like, one guy actually called me back. He's like, wait, do you have a white pumpkin? But I got a lot of, like, emails about, like, how it's not possible for a white pumpkin to exist. And I got some emails about the circumstances where um, a pumpkin vine might grow underneath a wrecked pool that might be white, but certainly no pumpkin. And I got explanations about how pumpkins pollinate and how it couldn't happen under... I mean, it's just like... So, like... like we we looked at was it watermelons? It was watermelons. You're right. Thank you, watermelons. <laughs> oh yeah, because pumpkins are white. Yeah, no. It's, I'm sorry, that totally ruins the story. Thanks for the fact check. No, watermelons. It was an albino watermelon. <laughs> but no. So we 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 look at the we look at the broad strokes to make sure like 
this person who's telling a memoir story isn't making it up. And then if there's something like concrete, like factual that we need to confirm, that we need to look into, we do that. Not, not in terms of making it up, but there was, I mean, Sedaris has been criticized for maybe exaggerating things a little bit. And I wonder if the show has changed its approach to, like, I feel like I haven't heard David Sedaris in a long time, maybe since before Mike Daisy. Is that just a coincidence or has the show actually changed the way? It's- <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that's just a coincidence, but yeah, so like exaggeration. Yeah, I think we would. I think we would be. I think we'd be a little strict on exaggerations. I just. I, I can't think of a really good recent example, um, where it was totally like. I mean, that pumpkin thing is an elaboration. Or I'm sorry, <laughs> watermelon thing is an elaboration because that's like a white vine is plausible, but not the whole watermelon is plausible. We didn't. We have. We haven't broadcast that piece, and I think, um, if we did, we wouldn't. We'd make it clear that like. That's a fabrication. I don't think we would report that. Um, hi, I'm. It feels like in a lot of ways you're like doing the reporting again, which is incredible. I mean, and I'm wondering if you ever come across new things, or you know, you maybe spend more time even talking to a source than the reporter did, just by circumstance, and you learn something, and you're like, this should be in in the story too, or you know, maybe we should portray this person a little differently. Or- yeah, yeah, like, the fact-checking definitely, like, inform, like, changes, like, the, the, the story. Um, it's been a while, but, like, a pretty good example of this, I think, is um, uh, Brian Reed and this guy, Jake Silverstein, did a story about this woman named Carmen Segura, and she was, uh, she, she, record, she worked for the Federal Reserve, and she recorded all her recording, like, she recorded all her conversations with Goldman Sachs, um, and we did a story about that. And at one point, they, 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 had a, they had a line in there where, like, all they did was, like, they, Goldman did something bad, and the Federal Reserve issued something called an SR letter. And, like, Jake and Brian, in their, in their f- script, they made light of that, um, they made light of like, oh, all they did was issue a letter. Like, that's not a big deal. And what I ended up doing was I called a, um, I called a, I ended up, I had a hard time finding somebody, but I ended up finding a lawyer who used to work in the Federal Reserve, and it was totally luck. Like, I was Googling around, and I just called some partner at a law firm, and he answered the phone, and he was like, oh, yeah, I know your show. I, I listen to it when I drive around in Connecticut. And he was like, let's set up a time to talk. And then he explained to me, like, how serious like a letter from the Fed is and how these corporations take them. And so, you know, I conveyed that information to Brian and uh, Jake, and they kind of changed the tone of their story. So, yeah, I'm not just, like, checking colors. (laughs) Uh, Sorry. (laughs) I just, first of all, you're amazing. You make me want to be a better person. I'm over here. Hi. Hi. Um, And then I was just curious about when you reach out to someone and you give them a chance to let them know what you're saying about them, like, what comes next, you know? Like, if OJ's lawyers were like, please don't say this, it makes our client look bad, or if someone thinks something is just, like, embarrassing, like, do you negotiate that? So something like with, like, OJ Simpson, we were just like, uh, he denies this, or, like, whatever whatever they say. Um, With somebody else where it's, like... Like, I never said that or whatever. And, like, maybe they did say it and you have it in the log. And then it's a conversation between me and the producer 
and the reporter and an editor about like what makes like what makes most like what makes most sense like what's the most responsible thing to do did the person misspeak are they being evasive now are they trying to edit our story post broadcast um, it's a conversation like I said we do have we do have the logs and you know somebody said something like we're aware of that and we don't want to necessarily give them the chance to retract something but we do want to like say it to them get their reaction beforehand because we don't want like some like big hubbub after the fact does that answer yeah i guess so i guess i just worry when people oh thanks <laughs> when people are, are are like um they just don't like how they sound or like if they're just mad about it um yeah, it, I don't, yeah. you know honestly like people are pretty grateful for the call like it's like pretty rare like a lot i mean like sometimes it's like kind of like the trickier stuff like political stories or somebody who's like potentially perceived as racist or something they might be a little more combative but like the average person is pretty happy they're like oh it's so cool you fact checker like thank you for calling me um and yeah i don't so yeah there's it's it it, it like but in those instances where there are discrepancies it's a it's a conversation and we discuss um like what's the most responsible thing to to report um, I'm right here. Hey. Um, I'm curious about your story about the Macedonian serial reporter killer. So were you actually speaking to the reporter who was the serial killer? No. He was dead. He committed suicide. Oh, okay. Um, so you were reporting on um, the story. So we were, yeah, he was, he was dead. And I was reaching out to people like, you know, his family and some colleagues. Uh, I was trying to reach that sheriff that I mentioned. Um, I have no idea if they call sheriffs or they're called sheriffs in Macedonia, but whatever the small town guy I was trying to reach I was trying to reach him um, and then I ended up reaching the national police um, spokesman and he was helpful in the sense that he told me that nothing was true hey yeah i uh, I was wondering if you could give a sense of your timeline on this stuff like. Do you not start working until there's a draft on paper? Yeah. Uh, and um, then I'll, how long would you spend on this? Every, every story is different. Like, um, like a really big story. Uh, like, well, um, the most time I ever spent working on a story was the Federal Reserve story. I spent about a month working on that one. But that's truly an exception. Um, I would say most big shows, like a show that lasts like a whole hour, I will spend about a week, maybe a week and a half working on. Um, and then smaller pieces, you know, they can go anywhere from two hours to five days, three, four, three, four days. It really, it really varies. Um, some big ones that stand out in recent past would be like Abdi, Abdi and the Golden Ticket. I worked on that one for about a week and a half. Um, the Grease ones we worked on each well, there, there, that that actually those those ones were broken up. There were three of us working on that those show at one time. We each, we spent about two and a half weeks working on those three of us. Um, what are some uh, last year's like the, the last year's best documentary winner here? I ended up fact checking that. Um, it was Samantha Brown. We called it Twenty Years After. I can't remember what the third coast title is. Um, it's and I spent I spent about I spent just over a week and a half fact checking that one. Um, so, like, a, a longer fact check would be about a week, week and a half, and a short fact check would be about two hours. Um, hi, over here. Um, I have a question about uncheckable facts. So, it's situations where 
somebody claims to have done something, but there were no witnesses, or like a conversation of one of the people is dead. Like, do you not? Do you always not include those stories, or do you have language you use? Like, this person was too dead for us to confirm this, or like, what do you do <laughs> during that kind of stuff? Um, yeah, I think we usually try to find like a sec. Like, I, I I can't think of a clear example in the moment. Um, Like this, this is this is there was we did recently did a, this is might may not be like what you're driving at, but there was a recent example where um, there was we did a story about the Inuit in um, I guess somewhere in northern Canada, and there was a doc a film documentarian who went to document their experience of the environment, and he said in the interview that he got a letter from the some sort of uh, scientific society saying that the story he's telling is not right, that it's irresponsible. Um, I tried, like, a devil to get this guy to give me the letter. Like, he, he recreated, like, his hard drive. Um, he told me he could see, like, because he was at one university, and now he's at another university. Um, and... Like, I, I mean, like, we talked to him about it. I talked to him about it. The reporters talked to him about it. He offered this information to the producer. Like, it was one of the first things he said. Um, but I, I didn't have the letter. And this was, like, a small thing. But it was just, like, and what we did was, like, we changed the language, made it a little vaguer to, like, instead of saying, like, he got that, we said he remembers getting a letter. And we, char- we had him characterize the letter in tape so it was clear that it was a, a recollection and not and not something that's, like, this is something we've seen with our own eyes and we know it to be certainly true. Does that answer your question? Okay. Is there a time of you couldn't verify a crucial fact like to a story and how do you address that? Or one of the most difficult um, facts to verify? I, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't have... Like, like a, like a, like I, I can think of some like a difficult like fact check moments. Um, is that would that be of interest? Like kind of like a, like we could call it extreme fact checking. <laughs> um, Zoe Chase. This is uh, Zoe Chase did a story um, in our uh, Hurricane Katrina ten uh, year anniversary show about whatever three or four years ago, three years ago, two years ago. I don't remember. Um, and. She did a story about a guy named Roy, and he lost his house um, because after the re- during the reconstruction, he got a loan, and the loan he got was incredibly, incredibly disadvantageous to to him. Um, and we contacted the people who issued the loan, and the guy was like, "Look, like this stuff happens." He read the materials; he knew this was a possibility. He was like, it's not like I know, like, it's not like this is good for me. It's not like I own other properties in New Orleans. Um, Zoe was back in New York, and we were trying to figure that out. I was like, well, does this guy own other properties in New Orleans? So what I did was I called the, I can't remember what branch of government was. I called that office, and I was like, can I find this out? And they were like, you can't find that out here. You have to come into our offices and use our computers in our office. And I was like, okay. So I found out, like, where that computer was, what floor. And Zoe tweeted out, like, hey, I need some help. Like, can we hire, like, is there a stringer? And, like, 
I, I got on the phone with that stringer and told him, like, go to this office, run this name, find this information, and send it to me. Um, and it's funny enough, like, the, the same guy, just because it was, like, such a tricky situation, like, we wanted to be sure because this guy lost his house, he wasn't getting back to me for fact-checking either. And, like, in that instance, because it did involve a house, um, we hired somebody else to go outside, to stand outside his house um, with a bunch of questions that I had sent um, in case I didn't answer my phone or something. But she called me, and he was there. And she called me on my cell phone, and I remember I was, I was eating uh, in a deli. And I just, like, took, and I just, like, fact-checked while I was in the middle of eating a little snack. Um, I don't know. <laughs> so that's, like, an extreme situation. I don't know. <laughs> that doesn't happen a lot, but it does happen. Okay, let's say I am a source in a story, and you call me. How do you calm me down? What do you say? What's your spiel? Um, How do you introduce yourself? I think I would usually, a lot of, it depends on the story, I think. I think on especially sensitive or controversial stories, I would have the producer get in touch first, um, and the producer would say, hey, this guy, Christopher, is going to get in touch, and, like, he's not fact-checking you, he's fact-checking me, like, to make sure that, like, I didn't get anything wrong. Um, And that's true, but I am, and also, I do have, like, I always do have my eyes open for like is this what this person telling me true um and so anyway I get in touch with people and I I say hey you know and I have a conversation with them I was like oh so you were in the army um when did you join uh, do you mind if I ask your date of birth and I'm getting like information like that from them because I'm when I get off the phone I'm going to call the state Dep- or the pentagon I'm going to be like hey can we run this guy's information to make sure that he was in fact uh in the army um so I just, like, have conversations with people, but then I do, I do check them out a little bit, too. This is a, yeah. Hi. Um, do you check, sometimes you guys have memoir pieces where someone's just kind of, they've written. Yeah, we check the memoirs. Like, we yeah. check, like, um, like, like, I, like the, we check, like, kind of the, that, like, somebody was in a situation, like, we might get a, like, hey, can I talk to somebody else who, who knows about this? Um, yeah, well, like we, I've, I've fact-checked comedy, like, <laughs> um, um, and the comedian was quite unhappy with me. <laughs> but just because the way he presented it, he was like, he presented like this thing happened, and I wanted to know like if this thing in fact had happened. And I was like, just come on, man, like work with me and give me some people's name. And I con- and I talked to some people who knew the like who knew the story, and I ran it by them. Like that thing definitely happened. It's clear like where he takes the story is fabrication. But the, the germ of the story was, was true. But yeah, so we do, we, do, we do look into it. When you call someone to fact check, hi. Hey. Um, when you call someone to fact check, do you go in the studio and put it on tape? Or you I just, don't, no I, have, no. I just work on my phone. Okay. I don't record the conversations. Um, so like I, with the, what I'll do is I'll highlight stuff, and what I'll do is I'll take note of the discrepancies. And then with those, excuse me, and with those discrepancies, I'll, I'll start to make comments in the Google Doc. Hi. Um, when and how do you make the judgment call when you are fact-checking numbers? Um, because you were like, well, it's 600, but it's actually 623. Like, when do you round well, I just down? Didn't, I didn't know his source. And, like, and, he, and I was not totally... I mean, just, I just wanted to be sure that, like, he wasn't crazy. Because, like, if he had said 120,000 people at the border and it was actually, like, 69,000 people, like, that's a big difference. And, like, that's, like... 
he might do that because he wanted to make it sound more dramatic or more terrifying or more harrowing than it would. I mean, 69,000 is still a lot of people. But uh, he might, if he inflated that in a gross way, we would want to be, we would want to correct him. But in general, when do you decide, like, a number around 60,000 is fine or, like, if it's, like, actually 123, you could say there's, about... There's yeah. no, there's no, there is no, in, I don't, there's no in general. Like, I, it's, it's always, like, it's, it's, it's case by case. I do my best to... You know, and I, you know, sometimes like I, you know, I talk to people about numbers sometimes because like if numbers are misleading, um, one thing that can be quite confusing is, um, you know, deportation numbers, um, like what what those are and what they mean. They call them removals, um, or they call them uh, they call them removals and returns, and the, they mean different things. And so like, you know, I, I would I would talk, I've, I have talking to spoken to people about like what those differences are and what they might mean. And I have that in mind when we would report something like a deportation number. Hi. How rare or frequent is it to just catch somebody in a total, unabashed, intentional lie? Pretty rare. Like, like I said, that story about that, about my serial killer story, like, that's exceptional. I mean, that's really rare. Like, I just, I think most people working in journalism are like, like, they want to do good journalism. It's rare. It's it's kind of like the extreme situation. Hi. I was wondering if you work in a really small shop or if you only have yourself, what do you think is like the bare bones essential fact checking that you should be doing for yourself or for, you know, the only other person you work with? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think it's really, I think, I think you should do sort of what I kind of showed, like go through your scripts, highlight them, um, call people, call the people that you've interviewed, run that information by them, Get their reactions. Make sure you're not misportraying, like you're not misunderstanding anything. Like sometimes you have one conversation with them, and you walk away thinking one thing. But if you have another conversation with them, and you tell them like this is how we're, and this is how I see it, you might have a different feeling. So I think you definitely want to run, um, you know, your, what you're what you're reporting about people by them. Um, I think you want to, if you're dealing with tricky subjects like immigration or, or like I've just found immigration, economics, education, are they're very, they can be very political. Um, so you want to speak to, you want to track down an expert run by your understandings by them. Um, and I think, it's a, I think it's good practice too to uh, think about getting things like court documentation um, and talking to lawyers if you're dealing with crimes, um, if that's the sort of reporting you do. Are there times when your fact-checking lens uh, or uh, finds better stories than maybe made, made the original script and you have to go back to the reporter and say, actually, he told me this other story that's, uh, that he forgot to tell you, uh, and then what do you do in those cases? Like or the questions that you ask... Like the uh, story's better? Of the nature. Well, you know, if you get a good talker who's, who's a good storyteller, uh, they may have, oh, that reminds me of this other thing that happened that's related that maybe didn't come up in the reporting. Or the questions that you're asking, the kinds that would not evoke uh, more, uh, more no. personal story. I know a lot of times I do get, I do end up learning a lot of information about people. Um, one of the benefits of asking sort of those open-ended questions is, is that you do learn more about people, and it helps you better just ascertain what it, or better um, 
evaluate what it is a producer has written. Um, but generally speaking, like if they tell me like some great ripping yarn or something like that, or like something like that, um, it's probably not going to change the the story. I would usually just just because it's fun and you're you know you're working on something with somebody, I would talk to the producer about it. I'd be like, oh my god, did he tell you this story or whatever, and like you know run it by them, and I'd be like, oh that's so interesting. But we generally wouldn't probably change the direction of a story. Okay, so. Th- Hey, y'all. I'm so happy that there's so many questions. I'm down on the ground over here. Um, This is going to be our last question, uh, just to let y'all know so we can finish on time. I'm just wondering whether you've ever run into a situation where you check somebody's fact, and it's a fact not about their own life, but about some objective thing in the world, and it turns out they're wrong, and you call them and and tell them that, and it sort of unravels a narrative that they have about themselves or how the world works. This this wasn't for This American Life. it was for um, a magazine story, and it was a story about. Just give me a second; it's been a while. Um, it was a story about a soldier, and he was in Iraq, and he was in a Humvee, and the Humvee was hit by an IED, and it flipped. And when he talked to the reporter, he told the reporter he was thrown a hundred yards, and I was like, "Wow, that's far." Um, <laughs> and I, I didn't know, like. I was like, how do I, like, is that possible? I don't know. What do I do? Do I consult, like, a physicist? Um, <laughs> but what I ended up doing was I was just like, hey, man, can you just tell, like, I called the guy up, and he's like, I, he's like, he's like, it was 100 yards. And, like, I was like, hey, do you mind just telling me some names of the other guys in your units? And he's like, I'm not in touch with those guys anymore. I was like, whatever, dude, just give me their names. And he's like, he gave me their names, and I ended up tracking a couple of them down, and they were like, no, it wasn't 100 yards. It was like 15 yards. And then I called the guy back, and I was like, hey, man, everybody's telling me it's more like 10, 15, 20 yards, something like that. He's like, yeah, dude, but it's a better fucking story if it's 100. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess that's an example. <laughs> <laughs> okay, on that note, um, thank you so much for joining us today. Before we go, we want to give you a chance to listen to the Q&A from the other presentation of this session. Hi, uh, I'm Sharif Yusuf. I work at 99% Invisible. also do some fact-checking for them. I'm wondering if, like, the short of it is, if organizations cannot have, don't have the budget or the resources or they're delegating fact-checking to someone else on staff who's, like, torn in multiple ways, when is the best step to come in as a fact checker? Is it like on the first draft if you're really strapped for time? Is it like on the final draft before like things are going to start getting tracked? I don't, how long, like when does your final draft come in versus like when you record? Because um, fact checking can be kind of time consuming is yeah. why I ask. Um, like I'll just give you a sense like a big, a big story, like an, mm. an hour long episode for us will usually take me a week or a week and a half mm. to fact check. Um, uh, this was a total extreme example, but some years ago I, there was a Federal Reserve story. I spent about a month fact checking that one. It was like inside the Federal Reserve. Um, but some sometimes stuff that's lighter and funnier I can spend mm-hmm. like two hours on. Um, I, but I think like you do want to build in a little bit of you want to build in some time. Yeah. Um, and if there are like if you if you're like working on a rough draft and you're like you know that there are like some numbers or something that you can anticipate being time consuming, you'd want to get started on the fact checking of that sooner than later. Um, if something were like legal for like if there were some legal thing in mind, like you needed to 
talk to lawyers. If you needed to deal with government agencies, they can be slow. If you needed like some sort of deeper understanding of numbers, finding an expert can, can take time. Um, so that's something to keep in mind. But I do think fact-checking, if you're going to like call people up, run things by them, look into numbers, can, can be quite time-consuming. Mm-hmm. So I would build a little bit of... I would build some time into your process. Yeah, if we're like going to hire like a freelancer fact checker, for example, like would you just be like have a retainer and then have them check like the first draft and then like along the like major milestones of like rough mix? Um, generally, tape, we like, pay people an hourly rate, yeah. and we just like trust them to, okay. to 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 and I've and I've been doing it long enough. I have a general idea of like when I read a script, like I kind of know like I think well, I think that's going to take about twenty hours, or that's going to take about a week and a half, or mm-hmm. that's going to take about ten hours. I have a sense of. How long? And I know you don't have that luxury, but um, yeah. <laughs> that's how we do it. Okay, cool. Thank you. Um, I was just wondering about, I mean, you've been doing this for a long time, so I assume that you have a long list of Rolodex of sources and stuff, but if you're sitting at your desk and you're on the internet a lot, what? how do you know to trust the sources that you're using? Do you have to sort of fact-check yourself in who you're talking to to check Yeah, a little bit. A good example of that would be like dealing with immigration issues um, because there, I can't remember the name of the organizations, but there are three or four big ones that, you know, that I've, that I've, that I've dealt with and I've, that I've, reports I've read through. Um, there's like right wing one and they, they take their numbers and they make aggressive, they build like, they, they put out policy papers about really aggressive using the same numbers that a left one would do to make like, say like, oh, this is, why we should be forgiving of immigrants. They say, like, this is why we should keep immigrants out. Um, but then there are other institutions like um, Migration Policy Institute, which is nonpartisan, um, who are, they have experts and they have testified in front of Congress, and they're, they're a little more balanced. Um, and they, they say they're nonpartisan, and I trust them a little bit more. Um, and there's, and so a lot of times, too, academics are good because it's part of their ethos to be objective, I guess. Um, for like immigration, there's an institute at Syracuse called Trace that's really good. Um, but yeah, I, I do I do keep in mind like who I'm talking to, what organization I'm talking to, and like how do you gauge like whether or not that information is being spun. And there's certain hot topic Im- issues: immigration, education, um, economics, like all that stuff is can be politicized. Uh, this has been really great. Thank you very much. Um, in the script that you had for Zoe, there was a line at the top that said something about so-and-so was super connected, and like politically speaking. And it made me wonder, do you often find yourself having debates with the staff over the sorts of adjectives that are a little more subjective when you're talking about something and like, was he connected or was he super connected? <laughs> uh, that kind of thing. Um, yeah. Um... So I, yeah, I, I, nah, I don't know. Like, I can't think of a good example, and I don't remember what I don't remember Rob like super much like in my in, in my mind. But uh, he, I do remember him, like he was he he did have some like like he knew Lori like he knew he knew people and like he was able to call media people and like he was like friendly with them. Um, but you're right. Yeah, maybe that's something I should be a little more like critical of. Super versus like regular connected. Right. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I can't think of a really good example right now. Um, I'm sorry. 
Hi, um, this has been great. I really respect your respect for your craft. Oh, um, I want to ask you if you could um, explain what you do, and maybe you could even actually simulate what you do when you call somebody to check facts the way you describe, where you're not just asking for yes, no, yes, no, but you're actually asking them to tell you something. And wait, wait, my question is, when one of the following two things happens, either they tell it again, and and it's not actually the same, how you respond to that. Maybe the date is different, or maybe something is truly different. And also, and I'm imagining this does happen sometimes, you're the fact checker, you're just checking facts. Now you're calling someone and they're like, well, that is right, but actually, please don't use that. I'm actually really sorry that I told you that. Or something that comes up that is not about checking the facts, but people have second thoughts. Does that, does that happen? And that what does do you, happen. What yeah. do you do? That does happen. Um... So with the first one, I, um, I do recreate conversations, and I do as, I, as I'm doing that, I take notes. And when there are discrepancies, um, I take note of the discrepancy. And sometimes I'll be like, but wait, like, didn't you tell the reporter X, Y, and Z? And, they, and, and sometimes they might be like, oh, yeah, but I didn't, like, uh, there could be my, some sort of misunderstanding. Or like, if I could give you an ex- I'm going to give an example. Of, um, I, I remember once I was working on a story and some guy was saying, he, I was like, I called him, and we were talking about uh, his military service. And he, and he had, I think there's something, we were, we were identifying him as a Marine. And in, in the course of his conversation, he said something to me. And I was like, wait, didn't you tell so-and-so that you were a Marine? And he said, no, I never said I was a Marine. I said I served with the Marines in Iraq at this X, Y, and date. He's actually, I'm actually in the Navy. Um, I'm a Navy corpsman. Uh, and that's a medic, and the Marines don't have medics, and the Navy, the Navy provides medics for the, uh, for the Marines. So I'm not actually a Marine, but I serve with them. Um, so that's like, like one example where a discrepancy comes up. Is that the kind of discrepancy you well, had in mind? Well, I was mind? thinking more like even something small, like if you're saying, okay, so um, when did that happen? And they say, oh, it happened in May of 2014. Well, your script says March of 2014. And you say to them, well, oh, like, they, like, they, like something like that. They'd be like, well, let, now let me really think about it or something like that. How do you like, know which one is actually right? Well, if it's something that only like if there's some way to corroborate it, you know, we can have them check something. Um, if there's like in their emails or something, I can ask them to take a step further. But if it's like some sort of events like where, where they're unsure, we might just go like spring or whatever, you know, just like <laughs> not, not be specific. But how about uh, the other scenario where someone says, "I actually, ooh, I, ooh, I don't want that in your story." Yeah, that can be tricky, um, and it and it depends because, like I said, I, oh, I guess I didn't say this today. Um, like fact checking isn't a chance for people to edit the script; um, it's a chance for people to fix inaccuracies. In an instant like that, I would just have a conversation with the producer. Um, that happened recently with the story that David Kestenbaum did. No. He produced it. I don't, and I don't remember the reporter's name, but it was about the Inuit in northern Canada, and some guy was talking about um, this letter he got from a uh, scientific society, and he was like, "I don't want you to use that. I don't want you to use that." And I, w- and so David and I had a conversation about it, and I, and I knew the letter existed, and I talked to the guy about the letter, and like we had a whole long conversation about it. And, and, and then David took me back to, like, the interview, and we listened to, like, the original interview. And this guy actually just sat down, and it was, like, one of the first things he said. Like, David didn't, like, pressure him to tell us about that. And, like, so we kept it. And, like, you know, I felt comfortable with that. Um. 
Hi, thank you so much for your time today. So I am a producer with a live daily talk show, um, and it doesn't have a dedicated fact checker, um, and it makes fact checking to the degree that you have laid out um, a bit more challenging for several reasons. And um, I was wondering if you have any experience or input with that, um, whether like how to streamline a process, like how to it. Like, you can't really anticipate what someone's going to say. Like, you, you have to catch inaccuracies in pre-interviews. And in, in that scenario, would you tell the, call the person back and be like, hey, don't say that. That's wrong. Or leave it to the host to correct and have it potentially you be have awkward. It potentially, like, yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know the format of your show, but I think it's always interesting. Yeah, for course, the host is like, oh, but I think it's actually this. Like, I would find that interesting as a listener. Um, But, like, the the sort of fact-checking, like, that's, like, that real-time fact-checking is, Mm -hmm. like, when, like, the the New York Times does it or whatever, like, those aren't, like, the fact-checkers. Those are, like, the political reporters who know that world inside and out. Um, So they have all that stuff at the tip of their fingertips. Like, it's fact-checking, but it's a a, a, different beast Mm -hmm. of fact-checking. Like, there's, like, I have the luxury of, like, working on long-form stuff um, and having time. And they have the, they're 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 beat they're beat reporters. Um, so I don't like. I think you should hire a beat reporter. No, I, <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, we do have reporters that that can help out. I, yeah. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Um, when you were talking about Zoe's story, you cited a GAO report. Yeah. Um, as your source, and like one thing I've been thinking of that I'm kind of interested in is like. In recent months, we've seen like the government willing to like scrub numbers or like censor information in the data they're putting out or creatively interpret the information they're putting out. I'm just like wondering like like how do you deal with information that historically has been like the best or only source of numbers for like FBI crime statistics or whatever, but like those are actually in, a little like questionable just because like well that's, that, this is what I'm asking yeah is like maybe yeah. like like what what makes something feel like the, and is it changing over time? Like, how are you like working through some of that? I don't. I don't. I mean, I don't know what like numbers right now are like. I guess like probably like maybe like EP. But I guess like the Trump administration just put out an EPA report, and like all, I haven't read it. I don't. All I know is what the New York Times said. But like apparently scientists were like, "Oh, this is actually not a scrubbed report." Um, I don't. Um, I think the thing I was thinking of, they put out like the latest FBI crime report. And yeah, they the, scrubbed like eighty percent of the data and tables from it or something like that where there historically aren't there anymore. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. I haven't I haven't dealt with that one recently, but like I just even know like with like the FBI reports it's kind of interesting because there's no uniformity in terms of like police departments reporting that stuff to the FBI. Like sometimes it happens um Sometimes it, it's like it's incomplete. Um, like you know, maybe like one county does it, but the county next door doesn't do it. Um, and but I, as far as I know, like that's like that's like the most definitive database there is for that sort of information. Um, yeah. And like you could, I think like if you're looking at a particular like locale, like you can maybe like find some of that information in the FBI and then contact the jurisdiction and try to get the information like that. But if you're looking for like national statistics or something like that, I think just generally it's incomplete. Yeah, I I think my question was more just like the nature of your sources over time, do they change in terms of how much you trust them or not? That was sort of the thing I was... was They haven't. There's not an example I can think of right now. Hi, I'm wondering uh, what happens when you can't fact check something, aka you call and you call and you call and you simply cannot get in touch with the source. Yeah. Um, sometimes how do you handle that situation? Sometimes we rely on logs. Um, 
It depends. Like I, I, yesterday, I told a, the story of an uh, extreme fact-checking situation where Zoe Chase was working on a story where she um, went to uh, she went to New Orleans and she was dealing with this guy who lost his house or he was in the process of losing in his house because of a, a loan deal and the guy wouldn't get back to me on the phone and we really needed to talk to him just given the situation of what we were reporting and we hired a, a stringer to go stand outside the guy's house with a bunch of questions from me uh, in case she wasn't able to reach me um, when he showed up she was, a, she was able to reach me and I was able to like talk to him and get the information I needed um, and then other times like we've relied on logs and people's lawyers I don't remember the specifics of the the story, but the guy there was a case we, there was a, there was a there was a story we did in Caddo Parish, Louisiana, recently, and it was about a I can't remember this I can't remember the, this guy's particular circumstance. I'm sorry, but he disappeared. Um, we couldn't get back. We couldn't get in touch with him um, during fact checking, but we had the logs and we were in contact with his lawyer, and I felt pretty you know I felt pretty good for whatever reason. He was just poor. Maybe his phone like died or whatever, we couldn't reach them. Is, is there a situation where you would write in a script, we were, you know, after making X number of attempts, we would, we, we, we were unable to reach this person for if, if they, or, would you, or would you pull the we story? Would, I don't think point? we would do that for a fact-checking yeah. reason, no. Like, I think we would do that for a reporting reason. Yeah. Like, we would say, like, during the course of this reporting, we were unable to, to, to reach somebody. But I don't think we generally would put, like, fact-checking is behind the scenes. It's yeah. not, like, part of the story. So, no. Thank you. Okay. I'm wondering if you have workflow tips for reporters and producers to kind of build in being prepared for a fact checker um, into your process. I, I know for me, the, the rare times I get fact checked is the scramble at the end of like, oh shoot, where did that come from? Oh, and like, yeah. how, how do you prepare for that from the beginning? I would. Um, do you work? We work in Google Docs, mm -hmm. and it's really quite. It's really helpful, and I would. Um, I would start footnoting your reporting, like you know, wherever. from the note stage or the script stage. Um, I would do it at the script stage. Like um, a lot of time, like ide the, I the ideal process for me uh, is when the producers have their like you know they they spend their time structuring tape and then they write their scripts. When they have the script that's more or less like what they're working with, they they start footnoting the uh, script with me. Like I'll be working on you know familiarizing myself with the material and I'll be making footnotes and they'll be like oh see like this report see this law contact this person here's the expert. Um, yeah, I think you should start footnoting uh, stuff yourself. That way you won't... Oh, but you're talking about you forget. So maybe you should start at the reporting stage. Just start, keep better, just keep, start keeping better notes. Hey. Uh, sorry for double dipping. Um, so maybe it's just because I've also done a fair amount of fact-checking and uh, it seems like you need to be a pretty detail-oriented person slash a bit neurotic to do that <laughs> job well. Um, and Thanks. You're, and you're, oh yeah, I mean like I'm right there with you, man. Um, but your story of like waking up in the middle of the night and being like, oh shit, I need to like go do this right now, like resonated with me. And I'm wondering, just on like on a personal like self care health level, like how you manage to like be a functioning human <laughs> while also doing this extremely detail driven work. Um. I don't know. I live my normal life. I don't know. I'm a father. I hang out with my family. I, you know, I have friends. Um, I also oh, I need to get friends. I, guess that's the <laughs> well, I don't have too many. Um, <laughs> I uh, 
I don't know. The nice thing is, like, it's detail. I mean, it's, de- like, it's deadline-oriented. I don't feel like, I mean, I get the job done when the job needs to get done. But, like, when things are slow, I take care of myself, if that makes any sense. Like, and also, like, the nice thing about, like, This American Life is, like, not every story is, like, a super in-depth, like, reported, f- complicated story. Sometimes, like, it's a piece of comedy. And I just, like, that's easy to do. And it's fun. Cool. Thanks. Hi, um, I'm Mood Sadie, and uh, I have two questions. One is, say, uh, this, this, is, this is a good and bad example. Like, let's say you're uh, reporting on Jeff Flake, and he's telling you a story from his childhood, and he's a senator, and he's very important, and for him to spend time with Zoe Chase, and to, he just doesn't have enough time to, like, also talk to a fact checker. Like, how do you fact check someone who's busy, who's a celebrity, who said something from their childhood where you can't, like, use corroborated sources? And in a sense, it's a bad example because he's not going to be a senator for too long. <laughs> um, so I think with, like, more free time. I think with that one, like, I, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't sorry, have... Sorry, sorry. So not that as an example, but just the idea of how do you check, fact check someone who's super famous? Like, does Zoe say from the beginning, hey, by the way, you're giving me this amount of time but also keep enough time for my fact checker to like. If I if I if I I uh, with that one I relied on the logs for the most part, and I think I checked some of that information. And like there was some information about his career that I think we slightly tweaked and stuff like that, just for a number of reasons. Um, I checked and like um, like he's the source, like he was he's the definitive source for like his life. Gotcha. Um, so like I think it's like in that in the in, with that story, I don't remember like him saying anything where I was like. Oh, that needs like confirmation. Um, but with someone like that, I would contact like a PR person. I mean, he has a press officer, so you just like contact the press officer and be like, um, "This is this is this is this is what we're reporting. This is what I want to know. Can you get me this information? Can you pull the senator aside and double check this stuff with him?" Um, and then my second question is: um, when you're at a party or like with your wife or husband or partner, are you like? I don't know if that story is true. Like, I don't, I don't know. Did you? <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, no, yeah. I'm a nor- no, I like to talk about normal things. No. <laughs> no, no, no. I, okay, so I, sh- I should preface it by saying, because I'm a journalist, I have that quality in me where I'm like, no, Chelsea, I was with you. That's not how it went down. Like, there's this, like, suspicion of, like, that's not the truth. Like, yeah, no, I mean, all of my, okay. I have, most of my friends are journalists, and okay. we, I think we, 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 I mean, we, we gossip and, okay. like, normal stuff, and <laughs> we don't really, like, you're wrong. <laughs> no. Cool. Thanks. <laughs> Can you talk about the process of fact-checking personal stories or family stories and how that's different from the more journalistic? Yeah, it depends story. on, like, who's telling the story. But um, for sure, like, uh, I made a joke yesterday about my colleague, Neil Drumming. Uh, he did a personal story about uh, his family condo in uh, Florida. And, I, you know, I called his... I think I called his dad and his brother for that story, but there was one. He said something about uh, corporal punishment in the drumming household, and I called his dad and asked about that um, and, and got his reaction. So I do, I do, I do check that stuff. Um, yeah, I check memoir. I check, I check, I check the comedy if it's if it's if it's warranted. Um, does that answer? I'm, I'm only asking this because so I produced heavyweight. The Jonathan Goldstein show. Oh yeah, I talked to I talked to Bud or somebody. I talked to those guys. Yeah. So what, so there was like some details. I was just interested to find out there was like a detail about he'd wrote written about like so and so wore a suede coat, and I think that was one of the details that you checked. And I just wondered like, what are the things that you look for in 
those personal stories that like, like just that it happened. And it's not that like it was to- real. Yeah, that it's not totally made up. I don't know right. why I asked about the suede coat. I probably it was just like, oh, that's interesting. I'll ask. I don't know. I don't remember that. St- I, I don't think remember. he said it was a faux suede, and then was like, was it suede? Yeah, no. I think with those, that I don't think like, with that type of story, it was like I wanted to be sure that like whatever happened between those two brothers had happened. Um, that, that they were out of touch for a long time. Is yeah. that right? Yeah. So I, I talked. I talked to them about that, um, and you know, he, most of that most of that story was on tape, if I remember yeah. right. Jonathan yeah. didn't write write a lot, like I don't remember, um, but I feel like a lot of the the drama of that story happened with like Jonathan in the room with the recorder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You talk about how you go um, and look at each and every word in like a sentence, and I was just wondering if. I feel like in fact-checking stages, sometimes we're like, well, these, like, not everyone was a stranger, but they were basically strangers. You know, like, we we take um, and we put words right before a claim in order to kind of say, we're not stating this as fact, mm-hmm. but kind of, you know? And I wonder just, like, in the grayness of that when you're talking to producers because maybe it makes more they're like higher stakes if they're if they're strangers um, where like do, what do you guys have like discussions about yeah we discuss that stuff and I think it um, like it just depends on like the, the tone of the story and we, like, it, we, we, we bat that stuff around um, and we have conversations about it and we kind of arrive at like what we're comfortable with I can't think of like a super good example because it's like I mean you know it's funny like and maybe this is something I should be more like mindful of but like like this American life like sometimes we do do like it's 500 or over 500 or like we're not it just depends on the it just sort of depends on the story and the producer um, I don't have like there's no I don't think we have a hard fast rule with that yeah I guess I was just asking like do you find yourself in a lot of like gray area fact checking spaces where producers want to push a certain kind of idea because it help enhances the story mm-hmm. but may like, like yeah it's like, like, yeah, like yeah 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 like, I mean encourage. I've definitely had conversations but he's like yeah that's better showbiz or something and I'm like but no like and you know like there's a there's a tug and a pull and I'm like you know ultimately like it's the it's the reporter and producers story um and I'm giving them like my best advice my best guidance and um, if I really think it's like egregious, I will, you know, I will let them know. But at the same time, like I get it, like it's their story. Um, you know, I'm not like the end all or be all. Um, it's a process. It's a back and forth. Um, we, there, you know, there are disagreements, and we, you know, we hash those disagreements out. But and then I just had one more quick question, which is like per every fact, how many sources do you try to have that to support them? Like, do you just have one source or like three? It depends on like it depends on like the the source and I don't. Um, it just it it just depends like um, what I it just I it just I, there's no like I like if I'm like looking at uh, you know numbers and like there's usually like a definitive source about who those numbers are and that those are the numbers that we use so don't like go to some other place. Um, but like generally, if I'm like looking at newspapers, I look at 
you know, I look at more like more than one newspaper. I'll I'll read like two or three. I get various various accounts. I get pretty familiar with like the subjects. Um, Thank you. Sure. Okay. Hi. Um, is there like a moment from your career where you got something wrong and it still sticks with you? Um, I made a mis. Let me think. Um, I made it, I just I made a boneheaded mistake um, not too long about a year ago with um, a, a podcast. There was a podcast called Ricochet, and Zoe Chase like identified somebody from that podcast as being a Trump supporter. And like I had been on that guy's website and I was reading about him, and I just didn't pick up the phone call for. I mean, I didn't pick up the phone and call him for one for some reason. And you know, we made a mistake, and he was. It was embarrassing, and like. The thing that kills me too is like he went on um, like on his like message board and they're like, do they even fact check at this American Life? And they're like, he was like, you know, crapping all over the show. I was like, man, it just re- yeah, that 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 hurt. Um, that's one that kind of bugs me. Um, that's that's one that's one I can think of right now. Uh, how would you go about checking an anonymous story where you have to protect somebody's identity and you can't necessarily reach out to the other characters involved in the story? Uh, I would want to know who that person was, and I would reach out to the other people. I would. I mean, I think like, I think as the fact checker, I would, I would, we would like have a conversation with the producer and be like, I need to be in on this. Like, we would. I don't think we would. I don't think like I'm an extension of the producer. I think in that in that situation, I'd have to like, I'd have to know. Um, I'd have to know. I'd have to be in. I'd have to be in on it. Okay. Thanks. Sure. Hey, uh, what was your answer to Ira's preemptive question about do no harm and the lies that everybody? I think I just heard? laughed and like he. I think he um, he changed it anyway for something for something else. Like I think he probably just was like, oh, that's a better title. It was never really an issue. I just sort of it was just a funny moment. <laughs> we have time. I have a question, but I don't care. Um, uh, so this actually came up this morning. Um, so the Hannah Jaffewalt piece, uh, trends. Didn't she do a piece about um, disability benefits a couple of years ago? I don't. Sorry, I don't remember. Oh, I don't okay. know this. I don't know the specific piece, and I might not have fact checked it. I don't okay. remember. Okay, it was just. I know we got a lot of flack when people like, wrote lengthy articles about the fact that it wasn't fact checked, and I just wanted to know the eternal dialogue of that. But I, I wasn't. I, I, I don't think I worked at This American Life okay. at the time. Um, just don't, or maybe yeah. if I did, I wasn't in charge. I don't oh. know. Thanks. Sure. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Third Coast Pocket Conference. We'll be back next week with another session from the 2017 Third Coast Conference. But in the meantime, you can always check out our archive of conference audio at thirdcoastfestival.org or download our podcast, ReSound for the greatest audio stories from around the world. Speak soon, and happy listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.